the final hymn we sang just a few minutes ago before, the, uh, before we prayed, What Child Is This? I, I love that hymn, um, not just because of the, the hauntingly beautiful uh, melody, the, the old tune Green Sleeves that has the, that, that poem put to it, but the lyrics to that are just so profound, aren't they? To think about just the, the, the fact that the baby who is sitting in Mary's lap is Christ the Lord. That, that, that is stunning. That is the, the, the central mystery of the Christian faith, is that God the Son, who is very God of very God, very light of very light, assumed a human nature, came to this earth, and was born as a baby. And, you know, that wasn't some kind of a magical birth where he just sort of passed through Mary's womb and she's like, oh, look, a baby, a birth like any other birth. With all the the mess and the pain and the agony that goes into that. And then laid in a major. And this one, this, this is Christ the Lord. The man who wrote that, that hymn, you might have thought was, well, he's some great theologian. Well, no, he was actually a manager in an insurance company. And not to knock managers and insurance companies, but that's not one of those things where you're like, great theology and amazing things that are some ordinary Christian who's being faithful in an ordinary job, a man by the name of William Chatterton Dix. In the background of that song, he uh, faced severe illness and subsequent great depression. And during his time of recovery, spent tremendous amounts of time, time in God's Word, searching the Scriptures, and came to just a renewed faith in Christ. As he recovered, he penned a number of great texts, uh, one of which eventually became What Child Is This? Originally, it was a, a poem by, by the name of The Manger Throne. There's a, there's a clash. You think of thrones, you think of a glorious chair with gold and ivory. saying, no, the manger is the throne of this king. And the lyrics eventually became the lyrics to What Child Is This? In that less familiar manger throne, he wrote this. Now a new power has come on the earth, a match for the armies of hell. A child is born who shall conquer the foe and all the spirits of darkness quell. For Mary's son is the mighty one whom the prophets of God foretell. Love that line he has in there. For Mary's son is the mighty one. And he's the one that we want to speak of. We, in fact, want to go to one of those prophets who hundreds, even thousands of years before his birth, predicted that the one who would be born in Bethlehem would be, would be the Messiah, would in fact be God in the flesh. Psalm 110 is one of the, the psalms that we call a, a messianic psalm because it talks about the coming Messiah, the coming king who would rule. So let's just read Psalm 110 together, and if you have your Bible opened. Notice the title. This title is actually very, very important for the interpretation of the psalm. It says, A Psalm of David. Jesus is going to latch on to that, that reality when he quotes this later on in, in, in Matthew 22. A Psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at, thy, at, at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink by the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. 
Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. One of these prophecies of the coming Messiah, it's a royal psalm written by David. Jesus himself is going to affirm that David is the author of the psalm. And the point is crucial that David is looking down through history as a prophet saying, there's going to be one of my descendants who's going to be the king, and I'm going to call him my Lord in verse 1. David's son is David's Lord. That's the, the point. It's showing, it shows up in 11 direct quotations in the New Testament and 14 allusions about Jesus sitting on the, the right hand of the Father. The point of the psalm is that the Messiah and the Messiah alone, the one we know as Christ, Christ is simply the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God, he alone has the right to rule. He alone is the, has the right to be the perfect king. We live in a world where we have so often inept rulers, where we have incompetent politicians, where we have kings who don't always do the right thing, where we have congressmen who can be corrupt. We live in a world where there can be brutal tyrants who rule over some of the most powerful countries in the world. We live in a world where even priests and religious rulers, religious leaders, can be incredibly corrupt and, 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 and evil. And in the face of all that, this psalm presents Jesus as the perfect king and as the perfect priest and as the perfect conqueror. One who doesn't conquer simply out of a sense of, I want more, but one who conquers with, with his love, one who conquers injustice. So this is a psalm that from beginning to end is all about Jesus. There's some commentators who, who try to say, well, this you know, had something to do with David, and they would read it at a coronation. It almost seems laughable. If you, if you know anything about sort of Old Testament Israel and, and the kings that came from David, they rule over this tiny little piece of real estate smaller than the size of New Jersey to make these kinds of claims about those sort of human kings. So I was like, wow, that's audacious. But no, this psalm really only makes sense if it is talking about the ultimate descendant of David, King Jesus. Now, the, the, the call here in the psalm to us is that we must receive him. We sang this last week, let earth receive her king, and we even referenced that this morning, and uh, what child is this to, 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 to receive him? We've got to receive Christ as the perfect king, as the eternal priest, as the coming conqueror. We don't get to pick sort of which parts of Jesus we like. like well, I sort of like the part about his love and his kindness. I'm good with that. Or I like Jesus as Savior, but this king business, that's a little too, you know, takes too much in my life. This psalm presents this portrait of the Messiah as perfect king, as eternal priest, as coming, as coming conqueror. So just walk through these, these, these three facets of his identity. The first few verses talk about him as the perfect king. So here's David speaking. He's, he's saying, the Lord said to my Lord, literally the, this prophetic pronouncement from the Lord. Now notice in your Bible we have the Lord, the first one, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, signaling to us it's a different Hebrew word. The next one has capital L and then lowercase. That first title, Lord, is the, is the divine name Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you want to pronounce it. The I am, the, the, the one who revealed himself at the burning bush, the God who delivered Israel out of Egypt, the God who is the covenant-keeping, unchanging, eternal, immutable God. The Lord said unto my Lord, so David's saying there's this dialogue between Yahweh and this one that I'm going to call Adonai, the, the, the one who is the master and the ruler, which is also a divine name in the Old Testament used regularly, routinely about God. So we get this dialogue between two divine persons, Yahweh 
and the Messiah. He, he's saying right here at the outset that the Messiah is not simply a human being. He's saying the Messiah is one who takes on a divine name, who is regarded as Lord. When you see that in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus. This is not just Lord and kind of the British, like I have a Lord and a Lords and ladies in the house. It's, it's not just a title of respect. It is a divine title. That's how it was understood in the New Testament. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're meaning a lot more than just, well, he's someone we really respect. We are saying that he is God. It's foundational. If you are, if you are a Christian, the foundational confession of Christianity, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, that he is king, that he is ruler, that he's master. Now, it's crucial to understand David's the one speaking. David's saying, this descendant that I'm going to have generations later is one who is greater than me. Over in Matthew chapter 22, let's just turn over there for a minute. This is, this is an important point for interpreting this, because here we get the interpretation from Jesus himself. I don't think we can have a better interpreter of the Bible than Jesus. Um, some of the commentators think that they can do a better job than Jesus. Matthew 22, this is right before the, the crucifixion. This is the Passion Week, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders are coming hard after Jesus. They're throwing all of these questions at him, trying to make him say things that will incriminate him. And he sort of is able to sort of parry all of these assaults with just incredible brilliance. At the end of all of these back and forth discussions, Jesus comes with a question of his own. Matthew 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Okay, they've been asking him questions. Now he's going to ask them a question, saying, What think ye of Christ? He's not talking necessarily about himself per se. He's talking more generally, what do you guys think about Messiah? All right, that was a common hot-button topic of the day. They had a well-developed theology of what they thought Messiah would be. Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Okay, the Old Testament's clear over and over again. This David, the king of Israel, his descendant will be this Messiah, this anointed one. He saith unto them, how then doth David in spirit, or by the spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Uh, now, here's the assumption behind this. In Hebrew thought, the father is always regarded as greater than the son. And Jesus is saying, how can the Messiah be David's son if David says he's actually greater than me? They, hadn't, they didn't have a category for this because what they were missing is Messiah is not only David's son, he is also God's son. He's not only human, he is also divine. He is truly human, truly divine. They hadn't put together the fact of what Isaiah 7 had said, the one who would be born is going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus just threw a little, little wrench into the cogs of their theology, be like, hey, try this one on for size. Let me just wreck your nice, tidy theology to say, your understanding of Messiah is deficient. He is not only David's son. He's not only going to be a political ruler. He is God's son. He's, going to be, he's divine. He is worthy of worship. So back to Psalm 110, we say that Messiah is the perfect king. He's the perfect king because he is a divine king. He's not just a human king who is eventually going to die. You might have a great king be like, here we have a great ruler. And you know what? Every great ruler in history eventually died. Alexander the Great died at a really young age, like in his 30s, probably poisoned in, in, in Babylon. 
People are like, Napoleon, look at all of his might and his power. Eventually died on some rock out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Like, well, he was, he, was, he was actually a pretty lousy guy, so let's find someone who was good. Like, man, Winston Churchill, what a great leader he was. He died. And you go on and on and on. This divine king is going to have a kingdom that will never end. There's never going to be a fear about, uh-oh, who's going to take over for him? Like, you might like the current guy, but the next guy might be terrible. With King Jesus, there is no next guy. There is no succession. There is no sort of order of if he's not there, someone. No, he's going to rule forever. This also means this. To be a Christian means much, much more than simply having warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus. It means much more than just this cultural Christian idea that, you know, go to church and, you know, grandma really loved Jesus and prayed to Jesus, so I sort of have a positive thing about Jesus as well. I'll go to church once or twice a year and that's it. No, it is regarding Jesus as God. And listen, beloved, if you really believe Jesus is God, that will change the way you live your life. If you really believe that he's divine, you'll be like, what does he want me to do? I'm ready to worship him. I'm eager to worship him. I'm eager to gather with his people to worship him. He's much more than a great teacher. He's much more than a good example. He's much more than a misunderstood revolutionary. He's God with us. Now, verse 1 goes back to, okay, back to Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, this inter-Trinitarian dialogue between the Father and the Son, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Sit at my right hand. This is an invitation to a place of power and exaltation. Again, this cannot be true of David. David never sat at Jehovah God's right hand. Never. This has to be only speaking of Jesus. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He's not only a divine king, he's a, a victorious king. Every enemy is going to be defeated. Now, now, how is this fulfilled? This is the part of the verse that really gets quoted most often in the New Testament, is that Jesus, after his death and his burial and his resurrection, ascended to heaven to sit at the Father's right hand, to sit at this place of power, to be exalted as the king over the universe. This comes up in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus in his ascension and resurrection is declared to be Lord and King and Messiah. Hebrews 1 verse 13 quotes this verse to say, he's, this is not true of any angel, no angel ever had this status. To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? In Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 20 to 22 says that after his resurrection, he has ascended far above the heavens and principalities and powers and every name that is named to sit at the Father's right hand. It speaks of his glory after coming to this earth as the baby and dying on the cross in our place. He is then exalted once again to the glory of heaven. Go over with me to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, because this is an important quotation of this verse. And there's many, many places that there's 25 or so quotes or allusions to this verse. We're not going to look at all of them, but here's an important one. Just back up to Hebrews 1 verse 1. God who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus is the creator. Say, God spoke by prophets. Now he has given his final ultimate word in the coming of his son. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
It's almost, it's almost like this. What is going on in, in, in Hebrews 1 and verse 3 is Jesus came to do the work that he did. He died on the cross. He said, it is finished. And then he sat down saying the job has been completely done. Sin has been paid for. Death has been defeated. By sitting at the Father's right hand, it is Jesus' declaration of victory over sin and death and hell that our sins, beloved, have been paid for. He's purged them. It says by himself, he, by his very own work, he's a victorious king who has defeated sin. Redemption is complete. The ransom is paid. The victory over sin and death is won. There is nothing more that needs to be added to what Jesus has done for us. You know, sometimes we think there is. People, people believe that, you know, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but I also need to add some kind of a ritual, some kind of a work, some kind of a, something on my part to contribute. It can't be just that he did it all. No, he purged our sins by his own blood. He did, there's nothing that can be added to his finished work. And I think even as Christians who, who are saved, we can fall back at times into a, into a legalism that thinks, to be accepted with God, I've got to meet these sort of requirements, and here's a list of rules and regulations, and I've got to do these things and not do these other things. No, we are accepted on one basis and one basis alone, and it's that Jesus died for our sins, all of them. Sometimes we, we, we trip over our shoelaces, so to speak, and we sin in sometimes grievous, embarrassing ways. We think, hey, this time I really blew it. Now, the fact that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross means that sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did, not because of me showing God that I'm really, truly, utterly sorry this time. Yes, we must confess. Yes, we must repent. But our confession and our repentance do not in some way contribute to a scale in heaven that makes God more likely to forgive us. Jesus is the propitiation. Jesus is the one who satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. The fact that he is seated means the job has been done. Now, there's also this other word here, and we, by the way, we won't go word by word like this through the entire psalm, but verse 1 is so important. Sit thou at my right hand, this position of power, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In the ancient world, when a king would win, win the battle, they would oftentimes bring the opposing king, and he would put his foot on the neck of the opposing king to, to sort of literally say, I'm going to walk all over you. You're done. I've defeated you. You're toast. Uh, feet being kind of a symbol of shame and embarrassment, being like, you're not, even, you're not even worthy to be my footstool. That's the image. So Christ has won the ultimate victory, dying on the cross, but there are still enemies to be finally defeated until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Even now, Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, but there are some enemies yet to be brought before him to, to, to face their judgment. Chief of these is death itself. Right? Jesus rose from, rose from the dead. He defeated death in that preliminary sense in his resurrection. But guess what? People still die. All of us will one day die if, if, if the Lord tarries in, in coming back. But one day Jesus will come back at the second coming. He'll resurrect his people. He will judge the wicked. And 1 Corinthians 15.25 says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. 1 Corinthians 15.25 quotes this to say, when Jesus comes back, He's going to do the mop-up operation, and there's going to be no more evil, and there's going to be no more death. So even now, he rules and reigns from the throne of heaven. He is king, and one day he is going to come back. And those final enemies that are holding out against his rule, 
will be defeated. Now, verses 2 and 3 describe some, something of this, of his might as king. They're saying that he's the perfect king as, as one who is divine, as, as one who is victorious. But notice verses 2 and 3. The Lord shall send out the rod. The idea here is the scepter of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. In other words, there's enemies surrounding. There's enemies that have yet to be defeated. And he's ruling even now awaiting the day when they are finally defeated. But the idea, the, 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 the scepter of his strength is expanding. His rule is expanding in every direction. The picture here in verse 2 is that he has a mighty kingdom that is ever expanding. When Jesus came, his first message is repent, because what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm the king. Bow to me. Repent. Join my side. And whenever the gospel is preached, whenever sinners repent and believe in Jesus, they become citizens of his kingdom. In a sense, even now his kingdom is expanding. So Matthew 28, he says, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. In other words, I am the king. Going your way, therefore, go ye therefore, and make disciples. Teach. Make disciples of all the nations. An ever-expanding kingdom, beginning at Jerusalem and going to Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. That's our mission, is to, is to, to, to expand the recognition of the universal rule of King Jesus. All nations, all peoples, all ethnicities, doesn't matter whether one is Jew or Gentile, Anyone who trusts in Christ, anyone who turns to him and bows the knee to him as king, is brought into this glorious kingdom. He's the one who is at the center. He's the one who is ruling, not you and me. Now, verse 3 goes on to describe those who are the ones expanding the kingdom. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, Thou hast to do with thy youth. Okay, this is a, this is a tough verse to get our minds around, and the, the, the Hebrew text here is tough to translate. But I think what's going on is, is your people will be willing. The, the word here is your people will be free will offerings. There are a number of different offerings in the Old Testament. One of them is the free will offering, that you're just like, I don't have to give this one. I'm not required to, but I'm going to come and do so freely. He's saying the people of the king themselves will offer themselves as a free will, if you will, a living sacrifice to the king, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service, Romans 12, verse 1. Not that his people are sort of dragged, kicking and screaming to say, fine, I will declare the, the, the power of the, the, the ruling king, but willingly he has this, this, this influence and this power. It says that thy people will be willing sacrifices, free will offerings in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness, Arrayed in holiness, arrayed in perfection. One of the marks of someone who is in, in his army, so to speak, is holiness. Without which no man shall see the Lord. A holy life is an essential part of our, our testimony in this world. And he says, from the womb of the morning. So basically the idea is from dawn to dusk, 24-7, serving and worshiping and delighting in him. That's his army. That's us. We are called to serve our risen king, expanding his kingdom in the midst of his enemies, awaiting the final conquest. We're sent into this world as sort of soldier ambassadors, wielding not a, not a physical sword to coerce conversions, but coming with the message of peace, the good tidings that 
There's an amnesty that has been declared for all rebels of the king, and anyone who will accept his terms will be forgiven. Now, the, the portrait that we get here in these first three verses is one who is a perfect king, not like David, who committed adultery and murdered and abused his power, not one like Solomon, who was actually quite oppressive, who had many slaves, not one like Solomon, who had many wives and turned his heart from God, not one even like Hezekiah, whose pride of heart lifted him up to, to, to make foolish decisions, one who is absolutely perfect. This is a good reminder for us. We, we see all around us human leaders, human authorities failing. Um, it's always the case. Parents can be selfish, oblivious to the needs of their kids, sometimes even oppressive. A boss might lack understanding or care just about how he looks to his boss. Politicians can be corrupt, can be deceptive. Religious leaders, the list goes on and on. But King Jesus, he's the one who is the epitome of perfect authority. He's never going to make a campaign promise only to break it later on. He's never going to declare that he's going to do something only to find that he doesn't actually have the ability to do it. He's never going to abuse his authority to, to wring out of you something at your... No, rather he lays his life down for even his enemies. So this is the first and foundational truth here about who Jesus is, who the Messiah is from Psalm 110. But we go on to a second Second attribute here in verse 4, not only is Messiah the perfect king, but second, we see that Messiah is the eternal priest. The psalm is really divided into two parts, and each of them is a, is a, is a word from God. We have the first word in verses 1 to 3 that, uh, sit thou at my right hand. Then we get the second, second word, and it's an oath here in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to go back. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We see this unchanging oath that the Messiah will be an eternal priest before God, but one who's not just a priest, one who's also a king. We could see examples of priests in the Old Testament that were, were no good. Uh, Eli, right? He's a priest and his sons are wicked, so God deposes them, removes them from the priesthood, saying that's never going to be true of Jesus because he's not going to fail like Eli and his sons did. You see, others would, other would-be representatives, uh, representatives of God will fail, will rebel, but not this one. So we get this oath, and as if God needs to sort of like, you know, raise his right hand. If God says something, it's true. But this is just to, to, to say to us, he has sworn, and he's not going to change his mind. This is absolutely rock-solid, secure. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's saying that he is a forever priest. Now, Melchizedek, that's, he's not exactly like a major figure in the story of the Bible as you go along. You're like, well, that, who is he? I've never even heard, heard, that, heard that name before. Uh, as far as I know, I don't know anyone who named their kids Melchizedek. Um, he shows up just a couple of times in the Bible. Genesis 14, we back in the days of Abraham, and there's a big battle against some various kings. Abraham comes back from winning the battle with all the spoils. And this guy just kind of appears out of nowhere. It's Melchizedek. He's called the king of Salem, which is an um, early name probably for Jerusalem. And he comes. He's said to be a priest of the Most High God, and he's also said to be the king of Salem. And Abraham comes and offers sacrifices to this guy, offers tithes to this guy. And 
Melchizedek blesses Abraham and then he disappears. We never see him again. We don't know, like, did Abraham have dinner with him? Like, did they talk? Like, we don't know anything else about him. And then he just gets mentioned here in Psalm 110. Like, there's no mention of Melchizedek from that point on until we get to Psalm 110. It's as if David is meditating on the fact that I'm a king, but I'm not a priest. All right, the priests came from a different tribe. The priests came from the tribe of Levi. David came from the tribe of Judah. They're completely different lines. They're meant to be kept distinct. In fact, one of the kings of Judah, a guy by the name of Uzziah, tried to take on the role of priest. God struck him with leprosy. Be like, no, you're the king. They're the priests. So for for him to come along and say, this descendant of mine is not only going to be the king, he's also going to be a priest, but he's going to be in the order of Melchizedek. He's going to be a, a priest in the line of the guy who is a priest and a king, one who's going to combine both offices in one person. This gets picked up in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, saying that Melchizedek is like a picture of, of, of Christ, a picture of Jesus, the one who is both priest and the one who is king. In Zechariah chapter Chapter 6, there's this vision, again, of this discussion between Yahweh speaking with another, uh, another being who is also divine, and then there's Satan accusing, and there's the priest before him in filthy clothes, and God saying, I'm going I'm to establish a priest one day who's going to have a crown upon his head, who's going to rule from a throne. No, no priest in the order of Levi ever did that. No king in the line of Judah ever did that. But King Jesus will do that. Now, in what way is he a priest? Okay, what do priests do? Priests represent people to God. And Jesus represents you and me to God. I am so thankful that he does, because if I had to stand on my own merit, on my own goodness, I would have nothing to stand on. What do priests do? They offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Now, here's the amazing thing. Jesus not only offers the sacrifice, Jesus is the sacrifice. Offering himself on the cross He's like, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. This is incredible. He's not one who's using his status as the order of Melchizedek to be like, well, everyone bring me stuff. No, he's willingly laying his own life down. It's absolutely stunning. And because he is a priest, notice the text says, forever. The benefits of his sacrifice will never, ever end. If he were to die somehow, we would no longer have the benefits of his forgiveness and of his his protection. But because he lives forever, Hebrews says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. You know why you and I have eternal security in Jesus? It's not just that God's going to hit you with a magic wand and you are now forever secure. It's because Jesus actively, presently, in an ongoing way, keeps you. Jesus, in an active, ongoing way, intercedes for you when we sin. Listen, the moment we sin, we would deserve to lose our salvation. But because Jesus died for every sin and because Jesus actively intercedes for us and actively protects us, we are eternally secure on that basis. If Jesus is the priest, he's the only way to come to God for salvation. Now, you may be sitting here today and maybe you've come week after week after week to Cloverleaf Baptist Church. Maybe, maybe you're a young person, you've grown up hearing the gospel taught at home and in Sunday school and in youth group and in church. Maybe you've just always gone to church and you've sort of had a superficial, like, yep, Jesus. But there's, you, you know in your heart, 
there's never actually been a point where you have laid claim to what he did on the cross for you. You're not actually trusting in his works. You're sort of trusting in the fact that, well, I go to church, I'm a good person. I'm sort of trusting in something other than Jesus. The, the, the fact that Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek demands that you put all of your trust in him and him only. Not just sort of go through the motions, sort of, well, I hope. No. Turn to him today. Come to him today. He is the only way to God. He is the only way to have salvation. Now, for those of us who are believers, because Jesus is our priest, he keeps the door open at all times for us to come to the Father. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. It's not just abstract theology. It's the motivation for you and me to pray. In the Old Testament, just anybody couldn't wander into the Holy of Holies. You had to be the high priest, come once a year with blood on the Day of Atonement. But under the New Covenant, the way has been thrown open that we can come any time with any need. But think about what that means. The things that you're going through in your life, you're like, man, there's this, this anxiety, this depression that's just weighing so heavily on me. Take it to him. I'm going to go talk to God about that. I know that seems so like simple, like, I'll just pray about it. I'm not saying just pray. There's other things, other actions to take, but we should at least be taking these things to God in prayer. As you go through the holidays, and it's a time of maybe grief and hardship, he knows what it is to be alone. He knows what it is to be even rejected by those closest to him. Come to him with that. When you're confused, when you're feeling guilty, come to Jesus. When you sin, run back to Jesus. He is interceding for us right now. Jesus is praying for you right now. I think it was Robert Murray McShane who says, if you could hear Jesus praying for you in the other room, would that not give you a boldness and a confidence in your faith? And he says, guess what? He is praying for you right now. You think, man, I don't know if I can share the gospel with this family member, this co-worker. I don't have the boldness. Jesus is praying for you to be obedient. He's praying for you to have the power and the strength that you need to be faithful. He is praying for your holiness. He's praying for your victory over sin. He's praying for your growth. He is praying for your eternal glory that you will in the end make it into his presence. What child is this? He's the divine king and he is the eternal priest. Verses 5, 6, and 7 expand on this, and we see him as the coming conqueror. In verse 1, he's at the right hand of Yahweh. Now here in verse 5, Yahweh is at his right hand. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Saying there's coming a day when God will judge the world. When God will judge kings where the rich, the poor, the mighty, the weak will face his judgment. He'll judge among the heathen, not just, not just Israel, but all nations will be under his judgment. He shall fill the places or, or even the valleys with the corpses. It's going to be, it's going to be messy. When, when, when the return of the king happens, it's not going to be pretty. Revelation says the blood will rise to the horse's bridle. Like We're, we're not talking about a, oh, Jesus is going to come back and unicorns will dance through the meadows. When Jesus comes back, it is going to be messy. There is going to be... Intense judgment. But notice that word, verse 6. This is not just unbridled rage for no reason. He will judge. There's a standard of right and wrong by which he will judge all nations and all people. 
The day is coming when his wrath, which right now is restrained, will be unleashed on the nations, on all those who do not know him. One day the dead, small and great, will stand before him. Every one of us will stand before him one day. What is the verdict going to be in your life? If we are judged by our deeds, which the Bible says that we will, the verdict for all of us universally is going to be guilty. There's none of us who will be able to stand on the day of judgment on the basis of our works. The only way we can be delivered on judgment day is by fleeing to the rock of ages who bore God's wrath for us, who lived the sinless life on our behalf. There is a day of judgment coming. But again, verse 7 comes back around to this note of victory. He shall drink by the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up his head. Now, the the picture here is the the conquering king. He's pursuing his enemies, and he pauses to take a drink of water from the, the creek running by the side of the road to refresh him. Just this vigorous pursuit of, of justice. But then there's this word, he will lift up his head. The idea of lifting up the head is lifting up the head in victory. When all of history is done, Jesus rules. When all of history is finished, God wins. He's going to lift his head up in complete and total victory. He will lift his head in triumph when he conquers every enemy. He'll lift his head in triumph when death itself is cast into the lake of fire. He will lift his head in victory when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. He will lift his head in victory when there's going to be no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow. He'll lift his head in victory where there will be no more sin. When when you and I, all those who know Jesus, are brought to a place of final and eternal and perfect glory with no more sin nature, with no more desire to do what is wrong, with no more struggles with the flesh, with no more allure to temptation, what a day that's going to be. Listen, as you look forward to the glory of heaven, what's going to make heaven heaven is two things, the presence of Jesus and the absence of sin. All right, if you could have, have, have heaven without Jesus, it's not heaven anymore. And if you could have heaven with the presence of sin, it's not heaven anymore. Heaven's not about just having a good old time and a big fishing hole up in the sky and we're going to go eat you know, biscuits and gravy forever. Heaven is about being in the presence of Jesus for all of eternity and celebrating the one who has won the victory for us. And beloved, it is as good as done. There's no question mark after that statement. There's no doubt as to, will he win? No, he is the coming conqueror. There's going to be a new Jerusalem that we're going to dwell in for all eternity. It's a city of saints. Um, so as we think of the new Jerusalem, like this sort of cube coming down from heaven, it's sort of the idea that the Holy of Holies was shaped as a cube. It's going to be this massive Holy of Holies where we dwell for all eternity. Like, well, that doesn't sound really that great to me. You know, some of us are like, I like the idea of the country life, being out and living in a garden somewhere. You know, the new Jerusalem is also portrayed as a restored Garden of Eden. So like, good. So those of you who love the bucolic garden life, that's what heaven's going to be like. You're like, well, I also love the city being around people. It's also a city. Like, I also like the idea of being in the presence of God. It's also a temple. So the New Jerusalem is going to be this temple and this garden and the city all rolled into one perfectly. You cannot get any better than that. Jesus is going to 
make it all happen. There's going to be no pool in the new Jerusalem between, no tension between life and worship. All will be one for all eternity. Now let me just conclude with this. One day he will unleash his wrath. He will. And this is not just a preacher up here trying to do scare tactics to get more conversion so we can increase our numbers. This is what the Bible teaches. And to hope in anything else, to trust in anything else other than the finished work of Jesus will doom you. But right now there is a a window of grace that has been thrown open. There, 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 There is a door of forgiveness that is held ajar. An opportunity to get right with him. The one who is the coming conqueror, don't forget, is also the eternal priest who died on the cross for our sins. Beckons all men everywhere to repent. And Christian, if we know that that judgment is coming, we know there is an opportunity for for repentance. It's our job, as that army described in verse 3, to go make it known, to be that willing sacrifice dressed in his holiness from dawn to dusk, declaring this message. That's literally why we exist as a church, is to declare that and to make that message known. So we ask the question, what, what child is this? You see, you see the artwork of the baby in the manger. We sing the hymns. We think about the reality of Christ being born of the, of the virgin and laid in a feeding trough. Don't forget that that baby in the manger is the perfect king. Who even now rules and reigns. Don't forget that he is the eternal priest who lived the perfect life in our place and died the death that we deserved who even now is seated at the Father's right hand representing us. Don't forget that he's the coming conqueror who will one day come back to make all things new. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary, and to add from the earlier poem, Mary's son is the mighty one. Let's bow together in worship of him. Having a moment of silence here for us to meditate on who Jesus is. just a minute, we'll be coming to the Lord's table, but I've got some questions for you to just think about, to chew on. This first most fundamental question is this, is he your Lord, your King, your priest? Ask the question more simply, are you trusting in Christ alone to save you? If you can say honestly that you are, would you just signify that just testimony by raising a hand to say, yes, I, I am trusting in Jesus, only Jesus. Maybe you weren't able to raise your hand. Listen, nobody is saved by raising a hand or by reciting some words. I, I don't know. 
urge you to call on the name of the Lord. I would urge you to come see me or really anyone around you to say, I want to know, like, how can that be true for me?